The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California bar-admitted attorney, and I'm also a bankruptcy law certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And you know what came in the mail today? My 10-year anniversary certificate of being a certified specialist. So that was pretty cool. In addition to my JD and certification, I also hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property law. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance, as well as the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law, again, because it intersects with just about every other area of the law, including, unfortunately, sometimes criminal law. I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and, of course, taxation law, with a little bit of insurance law thrown in there for good measure. And with these areas of law as my reference point, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I've spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because, as I've shared with you many times before, I was born into a military family and I grew up as a military brat and I always will be one. And I also helped create another military brat with my former spouse who was also in the Army. I have firsthand knowledge just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. I love to share with you that I was raised by a dad who gave back to this country big time via his military service, who informed me that I, too, had a duty to give back to my community, to our society as a whole, and to the universe through some form of service of my own choosing in return for the great gifts and innumerable blessings God has given me. And on top of having a great father committed to helping steer me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I had the great fortune to know and spend a lot of time with and actually became BFFs with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the 20th century. That is to say, the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, 
and unfortunately, the systemic racism and misogyny that continues through into our society today that sometimes smacks me right in the face. But you know what? I'm becoming more and more a great fan fan of Taylor Swift, and I just shake it off. (laughs) And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me the stories of their grandparents who loved and raised them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, it is out of my great love and respect for these women who were always with me in spirit, urging me on with my late dad, that when the situation is right through my current chosen field of service, practicing and also speaking and writing about the law, I'm sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more and more probably uh, than not these days, for some of us, a lack thereof, and for others, most of us, (laughs) an insufficient amount thereof. And our overall finances and what we may need to consider to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate our our families or our small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you at least an overall outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find a qualified professional help. I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects in any way with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. Now, on last week's show, we discussed the fact that the same group that bought and successfully prosecuted the end of affirmative action in public and private universities in America last year, that is to say the students for fair admissions versus the president and fellows of of Harvard College, that was one of the case, case number 201199, and a companion case, the Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus the University of North Carolina, case number 21707, which the Supreme Court consolidated and then decided on June 29, 2023, along with another Supreme Court case, student loan ruling in Biden versus Nebraska at all. These three cases negatively impacted my cohort, that is to say, people of color, including women of color, wanting and actually needing to expand the opportunities for our families to secure a larger, more substantial stake in the great American dream by first gaining an opportunity to attend first-rate colleges and universities and also being able to pay for that education. However, as you know, in Student for Fair, Admission cases, the Supreme Court ruled that because the race of the incoming student had been used by Harvard College and the University of North Carolina as one of the many factors 
those admission programs, the court said, that use of any um, uh, factor violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is really ironic to students of American history like me, because I know the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was put in place at the end of the Civil War to protect blacks like me, former slaves, from the adverse and sometimes very scary uh, decisions by state, first states, and then private actors as we began to exercise our rights as citizens. Nonetheless, Students for Fair Admission bought a new action on these same grounds against the United States Military Academy at West Point. They also brought one against the Naval Academy at Annapolis, but we're going to focus on West Point here today. And that case was entitled Students for Fair Admission versus United States Military Academy at West Point, case number 23-CV-08262. And it was filed in the Southern District of New York on January 3rd, 2024. Um, That's because um, West Point is in New York. Now, Students for Fair Admissions did so because notwithstanding their victories in their cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, which reach just will reach just about every public and private school of higher education in America, in a footnote in his six to three decision uh, that he wrote, Justice uh, John Roberts said in that opinion, he said that that opinion didn't address military academies in light of the potentially distinct and separate interests they may present. So students for fair admission sued West Point this past September on behalf of two of its members, a high school senior applying to West Point for the first time and a college freshman applying for the second time, both of whom are white. The group argued that West Point was blatantly violating the Supreme Court's June ruling, notwithstanding what the author of that um, opinion stated. Um, uh, The students went on to say there is no legitimate principle that exempted West Point from that decision. Hmm. So in addition to the lawsuit, the students for fair admission applied to the trial court for an injunction to place a halt on the use of any race based factors at West Point while the lower court, court trial was pending. That trial court denied the group's request for the injunction, and the decision was appealed by the students to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which upheld the lower court's decision. Thereafter, the students for fair admission went to the the Supreme Court two weeks ago on Friday, January 26, asking the justices to intervene and issue a preliminary injunction on or before Wednesday, January 31st of this year, which was the last day West Point accepted applicants and started choosing the students it would admit to its upcoming class. The students gave as their rationale the belief that West Point's reliance on race was even more egregious than Harvard's. And the group said because award preferences only three groups, Blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans. Moreover, the group continued, the court our courts are not well suited to decide whether, as the school argued and as Biden's administration contended in Harvard and the North Carolina cases, it needs to be able to consider race to ensure that the armed forces have a diverse officer corps. 
which in turn is essential to the country's readiness. Well, if the president and the army don't know this, I don't know who does. So when we come back, I'm going to give you an update on how um, the Supreme Court ruled in that matter. And we're going to continue our discussion. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of today's topic by looking at, you know, under a bit of a microscope, just how West Point uses race in its admission process. But first, I wanted to give you an update about where we left things off uh, last Friday, February 2nd. When I signed off from recording that show, um, there ha- was no court ruling in the students for uh, fair admissions request for an injunction. But later on that same day, the court did issue its ruling and it decided that um, West Point could continue to use um, race as one of the many uh, admissions uh, selection criteria. And again, um, I'm, I'm going to share with you now. I actually read uh, the ruling and the court did a really good job of first laying out based on what the parties had put in uh, their uh, pleadings uh, asking for and then um, the students asking for the uh, injunction and then West Point, you know, firing back as to why it wasn't needed. So I thought it would be good for us to be on the same page. The trial court in the pending lawsuit against West Point had some excellent facts about West Point and its process that I want to share with you. Again, the case is Students for Fair Admission versus the United States Military Academy at West Point. And the case is case number 23CV08262. Again, Southern District of New York because West Point is in New York. So it started off that the court in its in its memorandum and its ruling and its written ruling. This is, you know, it talked about how does one become an officer in the United States Army? Well, it talks about West Point. It says West Point was established in 1802 and it prepares students to become leaders and officers in the United States Army. Now, to become an officer in the Army, an individual has several routes. They must either one, graduate from West Point or two, attend a civilian college or university while participating in a reserve officers training corps, ROTC. Hey, back in the day when I was in in high school, ROTC was a big thing in high school and it was a big thing in most colleges. And the third way to get there is to attend an officer's candidate school after graduating from college. A fourth way is to receive a direct commission after earning a professional degree, like a doctor or a lawyer, um, you know, and you apply. And because you have additional education, uh, the Army uh, might give you a direct commission. Or you could advance through the enlisted ranks and then complete one of the officer's training programs that is available and become an officer that way. Now, the defendants, that is to say the students for fair admission, they emphasize that West Point um, states 
in its own record that West Point is a vital pipeline for the officers corps, especially senior leadership in the armed forces. Uh, Also, West Point is a significant source of officer commission in the Army, historically providing approximately 20 percent of those commissioned. West Point graduates comprise 33 percent of the general officer corps in the Army and almost 50 percent of the Army's current four star generals graduated from West Point. Now, admission to West Point is highly selective in most uh, its most recent class, fewer than 10% of the applicants were given the honor of joining the long gray line. Congress has set the size of the Corps of Cadets of the Army to a limit of 4,400. As such, each incoming class currently consists of approximately 1,200 cadets before there's any attrition. Cadets who graduate from West Point under current law are commissioned as active duty officers with an obligation to serve our country for a minimum of five years. In its pleadings, the Academy states to be admitted to West Point, a candidate must successfully complete a candidate's questionnaire, and that's reporting their high school GPA, if they took any standardized tests, their extracurricular activities, their athletic participation, basic demographic information, which includes their race and gender. And then the second step um, requires the submission of their official high school transcripts, and their scores, their essays, and any teacher evaluation. And candidates are also asked to provide background information, including whether they are the first member of their immediate family to attend any college, their combined family income, and if they speak any foreign languages. Then the candidates must also pass a physical uh, fitness assessment, a medical evaluation, an interview, and must receive a nomination. To the academy. Now, there's two types of nominations, those from a statutory nominating authority and those from a service connected authority. So a statutory authority are members of Congress, the Senate, the vice president and uh, delegates from uh, the American jurisdictions, such as the District of Columbia, Guam, the Virgin Islands and the like, and governors uh, from the Puerto Rico. Now, Uh, and also the superintendent of West Point. Now, these steps must be completed before January 31st of each year. That's why the students wanted to cut off uh, that process before January 31, because after January 31, West Point starts selecting students. Now, I I told you about the statutory, but there's also service-connected nominations to get into West Point, and they include 100 candidates for year, that the president can appoint. The secretary of the army can appoint or nominate 85 candidates per year from the enlisted ranks, 85 candidates a year uh, from the um, uh, enlisted ranks of the reserve component of the army, 20 candidates per year for members of the ROTC or junior ROTC, 65 uh, candidates may be nominated per year who are members of the armed forces whose parent got killed in action. And finally, the president is authorized to appoint the children of any person who was awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, once the applicant 
from the West Point completes the questionnaire. The admissions office assigns that person a whole candidate score. That's comprised of 60% academic uh, qualifications, 30% community leadership scores, and um, 10% uh, from the fitness uh, of the applicant. And also it weighs in some race and ethnic uh, factors. So 10%. Now, Again, how is race considered to be used in West Point? Primarily, that whole candidate score is used. But sometimes that does not um, fill up the rank. Okay, so of everybody that applies to West Point, only 10% cut meet the grade. And if they want to have 1,200 um, candidates in each class, Sometimes there are not enough of the candidates based on this entry criteria to fill up those ranks. And so that's where race comes in as an additional factor to assist them in finding candidates. So in their pleadings, a plaintiff note that West Point openly states that the United States Military Academy is fully committed to affirmative action. As such, the plaintiffs contend that that commitment plays out across the entire process. However, West Point counters that it considers race and ethnicity flexibly as a plus factor in an individualized holistic assessment of African-American, Hispanic, and Native American candidates at three limited stages of the admissions process. The stages are when West Point considers ethnicity or when they're offering that um, conditional letter of admission. When extending the superintendent nominations that the superintendent uses to focus on finding maybe an exceptional athlete to fill out the ranks of the, the core's uh, football team, or sometimes they want to poach good candidates from other academies, such as the Naval Academy. And three, when extending office offers to additional appointees in order to come up to the number of vacancies that remain after that initial criteria. As such, West Point asserts that it uses race and ethnicity in these three limited circumstances only to further the military's distinct operational interest in developing a diverse core of officers to ultimately ensure that the military can meet its critical national security mission. In other words, West Point contends that the military has concluded that a diverse officer's corps is critical to the military's ability to defend our nation and that it, one, fosters cohesion and lethality, two, aids in the recruitment of top talent, three, increases retention, and four, bolsters the Army's legitimacy in the eyes of the nation and the world. So we're going to leave it there for now. But as always in closing here in Sellers Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including gaining the knowledge we need to understand how courts' decisions can and will have a direct impact on the readiness of our 100% voluntary military at a time when the world has at least two active wars and rumors of many, many others. As such, we need the best and the brightest in our officers' corps even if some of the best and brightest are Blacks, Browns, and Native Americans. 
So till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content.